You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who baked goodies for the bake sale. I'm looking forward to enjoying your hard work this week. Uh, And to that end, thank you to those who helped organize it, the Primrose family. Wonderful job. Thank you. Let's give them a round of applause. It's, as, as Blair just said earlier, it's, it's wonderful that we can do this, that, that we get to help support the children in the slum schools in India. On, on that end, I, I want to mention that, that Dr. Jay and Lizzie, who run the ministry there, are such incredible and, and powerful examples of how we're all called to live as, as lights of Christ in the world through both word and deed. Just as we've been learning all about over the last couple of weeks as we've been going through Colossians, um, basically what I'm saying is they know what it is to humble themselves for the sake of lifting others up. In fact, India's socioeconomic structure is basically built around a, a caste system uh, where the wealthy are honored and, and those in the slums are deemed as the untouchables, the, the worthless, uh, uh, fallen people to be ostracized. But in the eyes of Jesus, they're not untouchable. They're valued and, and beloved image bearers of God. And that's why Dr. And Jay's, Dr. Jay and Lizzie work tirelessly there so that these children can know it and, and discover that good news. On, on that end, in the, in the letter to the Colossians, there's someone mentioned who's also experienced this same type of life-changing acceptance, uh, a person who's brought from a place of being considered the lowest in society, who's brought up into the arms of Jesus and fully accepted into the church as one of them. His name is Onesimus, and we'll... Paul mentions him in in Colossians 4, 7 to 9, which we're going to be reading this morning. So if you want to turn with me there to Colossians 4, 7 to 9. So again, this is Paul speaking to the church in Colossae, and um, he's starting his, his goodbyes, basically, his final greetings. And so this is what he writes. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So if if we blink, we'll miss what's happening here in this passage. Which, which would be very unfortunate. And I, I think we do kind of usually skim over the final greetings in Paul's letters. We're like, yeah, yeah, he's mentioning a bunch of people. Okay, move on. But that's unfortunate because I'd, I'd argue that one of the most powerful and profound statements that Paul makes in the whole letter, besides all the glorious stuff about who Jesus is, is found in verse 9 when he says, Onesimus is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Why is this so profound? Well, because Onesimus had been a slave or a bondservant in a Greco-Roman society that viewed slaves as the lowest of the low, as as human property. 
And so for Paul to proclaim that Onesimus was a brother, that he was one of them, an equal member of the church community, this would have been incredibly scandalous and incredibly profound. Now, in, in our modern age, especially with, with the still very recent and, and history and, and brutality of slavery in North America, it's, it's, very, it's very easy for us to think with shock and horror, you know, why would this be scandalous and profound? Shouldn't, shouldn't Christians know that, that slavery or servanthood or whatever is bad? Shouldn't they know that? Well, for us today, maybe, yeah, but not for them. We have to understand that back then, owning slaves or servant was a common and morally acceptable practice for all free and especially wealthy citizens of Rome. It was hardly even questioned or even, even thought about as being wrong. It, it was just part of life. It's just, that, that's, how, that's how it was there, part of their socioeconomic system. And so we have to imagine that, that as new believers who were just beginning to learn what it means to follow Christ. It's possible that it hadn't yet dawned on them that, that owning slaves or, or having servants was, was sinfully dehumanizing and therefore antithetical to the kingdom of God and Christ-like living. And to be fair, let's not forget that they probably hadn't read Paul's letter to them yet either. So they didn't have that information yet. But speaking of letters, this is basically the exact point of another letter that Paul had written to them a short and often overlooked letter in the New Testament titled Philemon. In fact, it's highly likely that this second yet much short letter was, was given to them at the same time as the one that we've been studying over the last couple of months. And, and while it would have also likely been read publicly to them, like the other letter, it's, it's really a, a very personal plea or appeal to a man named Philemon, on behalf of his slave, Onesimus. And so, as a kind of detour this morning, we're actually going to be using today's passage from Colossians as an excuse to take a quick journey through the short yet profound letter of Philemon. And it's good timing, too, because, as most of you know, we've been going through Colossians, where, where we've been learning all, the, all these concepts about what it means to put on Christ, or what it means to live out our faith in a manner worthy of the Lord, so that by his might and by his word, we can bear good fruit and humbly serve one another in love and compassion and forgiveness and kindness and all that, all that good stuff, which is all good, right? It's in, in theory, but what does it look like? What does it look like when it's actually lived out? So the letter to, to Philemon actually gives us a tangible and realistic example of what, of what it can look like or what it should look like in, in our lives, too. Uh, so as we go through it, we'll get to see a powerful picture of the way the Apostle Paul puts on Christ and, and exemplifies the gospel in a very real and, and, and emotional situation that he's involved in. And hopefully through that, we'll, we'll be inspired and maybe even get a more richer or, or fuller idea of how Jesus can and should be reflected in and through our lives as well. And so we're, I thought about just reading a little bit of it. We're just going to read the whole thing. You can go home today and be like, I read a whole book of the Bible. Wonderful. So we're going to read Philemon. There's only 25 verses. It's really short. So if you want to turn with me there, if you have your Bibles, it'll be behind me on the screen as well. We're going to read through Philemon this morning, starting at verse 1. 
It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useful to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even in your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It's such a a beautiful and and heartfelt letter that Paul's writing here. And it's awesome that we get to just see a glimpse of of Paul's heart here. Uh, And it's very likely that, that Onesimus would have been the one to actually hand deliver this letter to his owner, Philemon. And I can only imagine what, what would have been going through Onesimus' mind and in his heart in that moment, right? His anxiety and worry, mixed with anticipation and hope. Just, just imagine it. There he is handing his, his master a letter from Paul, which will ask his master to do something that, that was at that time and in that society unimaginable, unimaginable and unheard of to, to welcome him home no longer as his slave, but as a brother in Christ, as an equal. Of course, it's, it's hard to know what was really going on before that moment. 
that the letter was delivered, like, like how or why Onesimus had, had left his master's house in the first place, and, and how he somehow found himself hanging out with the Apostle Paul, who was in a Roman prison 1,500 miles away. It's possible he escaped and made his way to Paul. That's what some, some people think. Or it's also possible that he had just accompanied someone from Colossae who had gone to visit Paul. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. Either way, what we do know is that by the grace and purpose of God, somehow Onesimus found his way to Paul, and in that time, Paul unsurprisingly shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, and in receiving it, Onesimus became a follower of Jesus, at which point all the angels in heaven would have rejoiced. So, right off the bat here, Onesimus' salvation and, and Paul's eagerness to share the gospel with him, even though he was a servant, is a reminder for us that salvation in Christ is, is available to anyone who believes in Jesus' name. Regardless of your background or your status or, or your sin or, or whatever else, there's no distinction in Christ. Slave, free, male, female, Jew, or Greek, all can find salvation in Christ. It's good news for all, which means for us that, that we should be ready to display it and share it with anyone. That's what it means to live for him and, and to bear good fruit. But Paul actually does more than just share the gospel with him. Right? He, he mentions in his letter that he's even begun to see and love Onesimus as his own son, as his very heart. He's basically adopted Onesimus. He's become like family. Which again is, is also what happens when we put on Christ, right? We, be, we become part of the family of God. We're, we're adopted in, into the kingdom of God as sons and daughters of the Father. Paul's exemplifying this in, in, a, in a beautiful way, right? And, and I'm sure that as his spiritual father, though, the last thing that Paul wanted to do was send him back into a life of slavery, he actually says that if it was up to him, he'd actually keep Onesimus around. But legally, under Roman law, Onesimus was still a slave. And ethically, as Paul points out, it wasn't up to him. It wasn't his decision. It was up to Philemon. And so Paul sent him back. Besides, as a prisoner himself, Paul wouldn't have been able to prevent it from happening anyway. In the eyes of Rome, Onesimus was not a free man. Though to be clear, in a more significant sense, he was a free man. Because true freedom is only found in Jesus Christ, regardless if a person is legally free or not. In fact, Onesimus' faith in Jesus Christ had not only set him free from the power of sin and shame, but would have also restored his worth and, and his dignity and his humanity as a true spirit-filled image-bearer of God. But unfortunately, that newfound Spiritual disposition doesn't magically negate his, his worldly station in society. Legally, he was still a bondservant. But yet, there was still some hope for Onesimus, though. Because his owner, Philemon, was also a follower of Jesus. And, and as Paul pointed out, he probably owed his own knowledge and salvation in, in Christ to Paul as well. Furthermore, he was even known among the believers as being a man of love and a man of faith. And so Paul actually makes note of this in his letter, probably with the hope that he'll be willing to extend that same love to Onesimus. Basically, Paul's whole letter mirrors uh, 
this verse in Romans 15, 7, which says, Therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah has also accepted you to the glory of God. Therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. This, this verse basically sums up Paul's gracious and heartfelt plea to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. This is what it means to put on Christ. To extend to others the very grace and love that Jesus has given to us. In fact, Paul actually uses a play on words here next to to convince Philemon to do this. He writes, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's useful to both of us. And reading that at first glance, it kind of sounds rude, right? Like, it kind of sounds mean that, that Paul would be like, Onesimus or, or slaves in general are useless. That seems like that's what he's writing. But, that, but I want to be clear, that's not actually what's happening here at all. In fact, in Greek, the name Onesimus actually means useful. Onesimus' name means useful. So, so what Paul's really doing here is playing off of the meaning of his name and implying that as a slave, Onesimus... Yes, he wasn't seen in society as valued, and nor was he, he useful to the kingdom of God. But now, in Christ, he's been restored into his true namesake. He can no longer be looked at as this second class or third class or whatever citizen, but as a useful, contributing, and significant member of the body of Christ. His status as a child of God makes him equal to everyone else in the church. And, and of course, this is the reality for all who found Jesus, right? Through him, we're all given a divine purpose for God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've all become useful, contributing, and significant members of the body of Christ. And so even as we learn to, to recognize this in ourselves, as, as we put on Christ, we also need to recognize and encourage it in other believers as well. Paul's simply appealing for Philemon to recognize this in Onesimus, to see him differently through the eyes of Christ. Of course, as an apostle, Paul did have the authority to just tell Philemon to accept Onesimus as his brother, but ultimately, Paul knew that this was something that, that he had to choose to do in his own heart. Right? His acceptance of Onesimus as a, fel- as a fellow brother in Christ had to be authentic, and not something he had to do begrudgingly or, or by compulsion. It's kind of like when I ask my, my sons to, to apologize to each other after an argument, which doesn't happen <laughs> yet. It does. Um, uh, but not that often, okay? But it's, it, if I ask them to apologize, it's, it's, it's basically meaningless if they just do it because we told them to and they just have a bad attitudes while doing it, you know? H- hug each other. You know, like, what, what does that accomplish? And in the same way, if Philemon only accepted Onesimus out of, out, of, out of coerced obligation, that would only serve to create an, an awkward or bitter or even a divisive tension within the community. So Paul appeals to him from the heart. And as he continues his loving appeal, he writes from verses 15 to 16, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, 
how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul's suggesting here that it's, that it's highly likely that, that God's sovereignty was at play in this. That's, that the very reason Onesimus had, had met Paul in, in whatever way that came about, and, and the reason he gave his life to Jesus was probably because God had planned it for good. This was God's plan. And so at this point, with everything that, that Paul said so far, how, how could Philemon argue with, with this? How, 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 could he, how could he argue with all that Paul's said so far? Well, from a gospel perspective, he certainly couldn't. Everything, everything Paul's wrote here has, has been a beautiful expression of what Jesus has already done for him. But yet, I'm sure there must have still been a battle between his heart and his flesh as, as he read, the, read this letter. I mean, I mean, think of all the implications at play here. If he were to accept Onesimus as no longer a slave, but as a brother in Christ, his whole worldview as, as a wealthy man in a Greco-Roman society would be flipped upside down. And wouldn't that also mean he'd have to let his other servants, if he had any, go free as well? And, and to that end, it's very likely that his wealth was built on the very backs of slaves or bond servants, like all his peers. And so doing this would affect his reputation, his business relationships, his property, his, his finances, his, his career, his livelihood. Basically, accepting Onesimus as his equal would upset the whole socioeconomic system in his household and in his community. Think of Downton Abbey, right? If any of those servants were, were given a seat at the table next to Lord Grantham, what, like, how could I even say that out loud, right? Like, seriously, never. Th- th- think of the implications there. The, the whole delicate balance in the house would be upset and destroyed. Suddenly, all the servants would start to think that they can, they can chill with the upper class as well. But yet, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. We all sit at the table together. No one lords, <clears throat> excuse me, no one lords over anyone in the kingdom of God. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it seems as though Philemon's eyes are only now being opened to that glorious truth. But again, as, as a wealthy man, I'm sure it was a difficult decision to accept and to make. Which also means he's also discovering the truth that living a life worthy of the Lord often comes at a cost. Whether it's a cost to our reputation, or comfort, or pride, or career, or, or family, or whatever else. Being an image bearer or disciple of Jesus is costly. But when we count the cost, we'll always find that it's worth it. To that end, Paul actually goes on in his letter to even set an example of what it looks like to pay the cost. Of one who's willing to both stand in Onesimus' place as a type of intermediary and to even pay whatever the cost might be for his freedom. Again, in both cases, continuing to be a model example of Christ and what he's done for us. So he states to, to Philemon in, in verse 17, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
Paul's appealing to his friendship with Philemon. He's saying, if, if I'm truly your friend and brother in Christ, you'll treat and receive Onesimus in the same way, like, like he is me. Basically, Paul's saying, this guy's with me. He's good. Welcome him in. And, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, this is exactly what, what Jesus has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? What, what that means is that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father now receives us in the exact same way that he receives Jesus as his own, as his son. That's, that's part of what it means to be covered in his righteousness. We, we, look, we now look like Jesus. Jesus, who even now sits at the right hand of the Father and exclaims to him on our, on our, on our behalf as our intermediary, receive all who believe in my name as you would receive me. That's what Jesus says for us to the Father. That's why, we, that's why we can approach God with, with confidence for relationship and in prayer. This is what Paul's exemplifying here. And in the same way, this is how we're called to receive one another as believers. To accept each other as Jesus has accepted us. What this means is that as, as we put on Christ and as we, as we live for him... We can no longer judge or define one another by things like social class or, or, or gender or by our worldly reputations or labels that have been placed on us, good or bad, but rather only through the lens of who we are in Christ. No longer the, the prostitute, but a daughter of the Most High God. No longer the addict or, or thief, but a son of God. No longer just a kid from the slums in India, but a valued and equal member of the body of Christ. No longer just an immigrant, but a part of the citizenship of God's kingdom. No longer the, the annoying girl who pulled your hair in grade five, but a sister in Christ. Right? No longer a slave, but a brother. In, in Jesus, we're all wonderfully and miraculously reconciled to each other and equally united together as a family. And Paul's powerfully showing and reminding Philemon of that magnificent truth with this request. Receive him as you would receive me. But then he continues his plea with, with even more profundity, saying in verses 18 to 19, he says, if, if he has wronged you at all, or, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So in those days, one of the reasons someone would end up as a slave or a bondservant would be because they were indebted to their master for some offense, maybe like stealing, or because they were working off a monetary debt Alternatively, each slave might have had a certain value placed on them by which their owner had paid for, for them at the local market. They're going to buy some bread, and then they well, might as well get a slave too. Just throw that in the cart, right? Whatever the case may be, Paul's once again placing himself in the place of Onesimus and saying, whatever he owes, I'll pay it. Put his debt on me. Whatever he owes, I'll pay it, put his debt on me. And again, this is a powerful reflection 
of what Jesus has also done for us. In our sin, we owed a great debt to God, one we could never repay ourselves. The the book of Romans reminds us of of what that debt costs. It says that the wages of sin is death. We, We can't pay that. We can't overcome that. But that's what happens when we choose to turn away from the one who gives life. But as it so wonderfully says in in Colossians 2, 13 to 14, it says, And when you were dead, in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He, Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Jesus at the cross paid our debt. He satisfied the wages of our sin. He died in our place. So that all those who believe in his name by faith are forgiven and set free and made alive in him. This is what Jesus has done for for you and for me. And and so it only makes sense then that as his image-bearing disciples, that this is what we should be willing to do for one another. To take on each other's debts. To stand in the gap for one another. To intercede for one another. To forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. For his glory. For his name. To be be willing to say for, for the sake of bringing reconciliation and restoration within the body of Christ. Whatever my brother or sister owes, I will pay it. Why? Because Jesus paid it all for me. Because Jesus paid it all for me. And that's the key right there. If if I had to sum up what Paul exemplifies for us throughout this this letter, again, it would be that that to put on Christ, to, to bear his image, is to extend to others the very grace, compassion, humility, mercy, and love that Jesus has already freely given to us. Just as Jesus said himself in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. As Jesus has done for us, let us go out and extend that to others. That's what it means to put on Christ.